Hi, and welcome to Walk Talk, a podcast courtesy of the Wound, Ostomy, and Continence Nurses Society. Walk Talk is your opportunity to learn more about advocacy, education, and research that support the practice and delivery of expert healthcare to individuals with wound, ostomy, and continence care needs. Please visit wocn.org slash podcast to subscribe and make sure you never miss an episode. Now, here's your host, Jody Scardillo. Welcome to this week's edition of Walk Talk. I'm your host, Jody Scardillo. This week, we sit down with Dr. Joyce Pittman and Terry Beeson to talk about a recent article in the Journal of Woundostomy and Continence Nursing entitled Hospital Acquired Pressure Injuries and Acute Skin Failure in Critical Care. Terry is a clinical nurse specialist in the Surgical Intensive and Surgical Progressive Care Units at Indiana University Health University Hospital. The majority of her 40 years of nursing practice has been in a critical care setting. Advancing her education, she completed her master's degree in 2011 with an adult CNS title. She is a board-certified clinical nurse specialist, certified critical care nurse, and a member of several local and national professional organizations. Terry has spoken nationally, has multiple publications with research in the area of pressure injuries, bowel management, reduction of catheter-associated urinary tract infections, enteral nutrition, and prone therapy. She has lectured nationally on pressure injuries and prevention of hospital-acquired caudies. Her passion is to decrease patient harm and embrace challenges around innovation in an effort to improve patient care delivery. Dr. Joyce Pittman is Associate Professor at the University of South Alabama with a research focus on pressure injuries, ostomy-related complications, and evidence-based practice. She also has a joint position with the University of South Alabama Health University Hospital, serving as a nurse scientist, supporting research and nursing practice. Dr. Pittman is a certified woundostomy continence nurse, nurse practitioner, and nurse researcher. She is on the board of directors of an NPIAP. Dr. Pittman has published numerous journal articles and book chapters and is an expert consultant regarding complex wound and ostomy management. Thank you both so much for joining me tonight. I'm really excited to talk about all your work that you've done on pressure injuries and critical care. So I wondered if you both ladies would tell us a little bit about your nursing background or your WOC background. Maybe we'll start with you, Joy. Well, I would just want to say thank you, first of all, for inviting us to be on this podcast. It's exciting. WOCN, I've been a member for quite a while. I've been a certified wound ostomy continence nurse since, geez. 1999. And then it started, and I always tell them this, but WOCN started my journey back into academics and then actually back into research. So it's been a joy. And that's how I've been involved with WOCN. I was on the National Conference Planning Committee for quite a while and have been active. And I'm on the Mideast region. Oh, no, I'm not. Mideast region, I am now. Southeast region because I recently moved to Alabama. Oh, nice. And what made you move to Alabama? I had been clinical all my life. I was in Indiana and I worked with Terry Deason. She's my cohort in crime in research area and pressure injuries. And I was at Indiana University Health supporting the team of WOC nurses there. And I went on for my nurse practitioner and then my PhD and got a little bit more into research. And so the opportunity came for me to flip. So instead of being primarily clinical with just dabbling in research, now I'm primarily research at the University of South Alabama, and I dabble in 
clinical at USA Health, their university hospital. Nice. And Terry, tell us a little bit about your nursing background. I have heard both of you speak many times, but it's nice to hear your professional story. And again, I want to also thank you for allowing us to be on this podcast. I've been a nurse for over 40 years, primarily mostly in the critical care area. I went back for my master's as a clinical nurse specialist. And even prior to that, I've really been interested in wound care, pressure injury prevention, just trying to help the patients. I am not a WOCN. I just love pressure injuries and the research aspect of it and partnering with Joy and all the work that we've done together. So my scenario is a little different because I'm still pretty clinical at the bedside. That's great. And so tell us how you came to work together on this project, which this most recent January article, which was one of the things that made me want to talk to you both. Once I got reading that, I realized that you had done a lot of other work previous to this article. So tell me a little bit about how you came to work together on this project. So I'll start because, again, Terry and I have worked together on multiple projects. And through my involvement with WOCN Society, and I was involved with the Center for Clinical Investigation, CCI, way back when, and that's when they were doing some grants, some member grants, and had some sponsor-supported grants. So we started off there, putting in for one of the $5,000 grants, and we developed Our first publication is JWOCN back in 2016, and that was the development of our puppy tool, the pressure ulcer injury, now prevention inventory. And we did a small pilot developing this tool because we were both clinically in the intensive care and critical care areas, and we knew that there were many patients that we were doing everything right and yet they still developed a pressure injury. And the WOCN and CMS and NPUAP at that time, they all had come out, released statements about unavoidable pressure injuries. Well, they had very general criteria for what is an unavoidable pressure injury, but it wasn't operational. It was so generic. First, you have to determine or evaluate the clinical condition of the patient. Well, what does that mean? So we operationalized each of the four components of those major organizations, definition for unavoidable and avoidable pressure injuries, and we operationalized it into the pressure, our puppy tool. So that first study was developing the tool, doing the psychometric testing, content validity, criterion, construct validity, reliability, and then we had our instrument And then we went on and we tested it. Well, not tested it. We used it in a follow-up larger study of 165 critical care patients that had developed a pressure injury. After that study was completed, we then knew we needed to do more and we needed to have a comparison group. So we then did our subsequent study with taking that 165 critical care patients with a pressure injury, and we compared them two to one to 310 critical care patients that did not have a pressure injury. 
during the same time frame. So we have three studies out using the puppy tool and looking at unavoidable pressure injuries. Terry, you want to talk a little bit about some of the clinical picture, what led us into this work? Sure. So again, being more at the bedside and working with the critical care nurses, seeing what they were doing, caring for these patients. These patients were on pressors, they were ventilated, they were very sick, they were getting the appropriate care that they should be getting. They were getting turned, they had nutrition. We do a nutrition score when patients come in so we know that the nutrition is what it should be. Just the actual care of the patients. And it was like, how did this patient get a pressure injury when we did everything we feel like we should have done for these patients? The other thing is kind of a little bit opposite was we had these patients that were going to the OR and they had long, we've got 15 hour surgeries that go on pretty frequently in some of our patient populations. And why were these patients getting pressure injuries when we were doing everything that we should be doing for these patients? So it just kind of made sense to look into this a little bit deeper and try to figure out what's going on with these patients and what could we do differently to help them? Let me insert here a little bit. We also noticed that there was a lot of discussion in the literature, in the journals, and then also at conferences, people talk about unavoidable pressure injuries. And Terry and I are really passionate about pressure injuries and they should not happen. And so we were concerned people were using unavoidable as an excuse to be honest, because there just was not a definition for it. And so that's why we wanted an objective measure. And that's what the puppy tool provided for us. So what were the criteria that you used in the puppy tool that helped you operationalize the unavoidable definition? The four criteria that CMS and WOCN and NPIAP came up with, the first one was the clinical condition needs to be evaluated. Well, what does that mean? That's pretty broad. We operationalized that to mean history and physical needs to be completed on admission. Braden, pressure ulcer assessment needs to be done on admission and then every two shift and then skin assessment. So we tried to operationalize. So that main one, clinical condition evaluated. Number two was, were the interventions defined and implemented that are consistent with the patient's needs. Well, what does that mean? Everybody's different. How do I know what that patient needs? So we went to the Braden, and that's the risk assessment. So we then looked at each subscale and were appropriate interventions done for each subscale. So we came up with the appropriate interventions that we all know, repositioning, mobility, moisture, nutrition, et cetera. The fourth one is, did we monitor and evaluate the impact of the interventions? Are they doing what they're supposed to be doing? And then the fourth one is, did you revise those interventions as appropriate? Well, again, you can see those four criteria are pretty broad. And so how do you operationalize that so you can measure it? There's some other evidence in the literature that talks about unavoidable pressure injuries, but and we're still looking. There are no real objective measures for unavoidable. So again, we used the assessment and then we used the Braden risk assessment 
and then those subscales to determine the interventions that should be in place. If you did those, you shouldn't get a pressure injury. So it's almost like a bundle, actually. It's all or nothing. You do it all. If you miss one thing, then it kicks it out. And so it means we didn't do everything we should have done. And so then we have to put that in the avoidable category. So say, you know how sometimes when you do a chart review, you're missing things or random things here and there. So if that was the case, then you considered that avoidable. Yes. Okay. And that stinks sometimes. Yes. Because <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we had a lot of discussion about, well, what if the brain's not accurate? We fuss about the nurses don't do the brain. But if you can't depend and rely on the documentation in the record, I mean, how do you pick and choose what you throw out? If it's documented, you've got to go by it. Now, if you see a lot of random problems with it, that might direct your intervention. Maybe you need to do something to make sure that your Braden scoring is more reliable. Or your documentation system is better or more user-friendly. Exactly. Okay. And then in that first article on the puppy, you had clinicians at the bedside working with you on that tool, I believe, if I remember reading that correctly. So yes, we had bedside nurses and we created, I know Joy and I went back and forth because there were so many data points that we as the critical care nurses wanted to collect just because of all the risk factors that we know from the literature that are out there that could attribute to patients developing the pressure injuries. So we had, I think we had what, 33? No, 52. 52 risk factors (laughs) because we would fight over this. I said, do you know how hard that's going to be for statistical analysis? And we went back seven days on each of those particular data points to look to see what the trend was for seven days versus like the puppy tool we did three days prior to looking at the pressure injury data. But with those data points in the first actual, well, the preliminary pilot study and then the secondary study, we looked at all of those data points seven days prior to. Wow. That was a big undertaking. It was because we were convinced there's something about the condition of the patient that does it. We're convinced there's something. These patients are so sick. It's still confusing, isn't it? It is. Now, so that tool was very clear. The example of the tool was in the journal article. It was very organized and clear. So I wondered, could you use that for a root cause analysis if you were in a place that didn't have a process? Or do you use that tool on an ongoing basis or what's going on with that tool now? So absolutely, it is perfect for doing an RCA. In addition to that, the RCA bigger picture, we actually are using that with our skin champions. So if one of the units has a pressure injury, that skin champion then takes that audit tool and actually completes it to see at the bedside, did we do everything possible for that patient or was there a missed opportunity for some care for that patient? And it's really good that it's at the bedside, this skin champions, because they can connect better with each other and 
they're at the bedside all the time and they can round on those patients and they can have those conversations ongoing as far as what kind of care that we might have missed. So absolutely, we're using those. Wow, that's great. Now, the unavoidable rate that you got from the pilot study and then your second study in 2019 was very similar. So to me, who's not really an excellent researcher, that says that that tool is reliable and valid. Is that right? Well, yeah. If it's looking at, it's an objective measure. And we're looking at it objectively instead of, yeah, I think we did everything right that time. But if you using the puppy tool, it's all or nothing. So if everything was done appropriately, yes, it's very consistent. And now there is some work by Susan Solmus out of the University of Chicago. And she actually, it was published in January too. It's in the same edition as ours. And she used it for her work. And her results were a little bit higher so, and she explains that reasoning too, but yes. So to shorten my answer is yes. The more we do it, the more consistent information we have. Now, just as clarification, our study that we did and that was published in 2019, and that was in the American Journal of Critical Care, and the manuscript that was just published in January of this year in the journal, that is the same sample group, except in 2021, we added the case control. So we have those that did not, and we compared those two groups, but the pilot and the subsequent 165, those are two different sample groups. All right, great. And then the unavoidable patients, it looked like length of stay was the factor in the highest number of patients. Were either of you surprised by that? I guess I wasn't. Well, Terry and I, we've been looking, making sure we knew our data and Looking back, if you look at that, and that was, I think your question relates to the publication in 2019, and that was looking at, we were comparing the avoidable and the unavoidable group. And if you notice the length of stay, there was no significant difference between those groups. However, the unavoidable group was a little bit longer. It was 17 days versus The other one was what? I forget. 13. 13, something like that. So the unavoidable group was longer. But if you look too, and I think this will lead to one of our points we were going to discuss, is about the interventions that are done. More interventions were performed in the unavoidable group. Well, that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? That's why they were unavoidable, because they had more interventions. So they were there longer and they had more interventions performed than the avoidable group. So it kind of goes hand in hand, but what the whole key gets into is, I hate to say it, but the longer you're in the hospital stay, fresher injuries develop. And what was interesting to me is it wasn't two days into the critical care stay or three days. It was this data, this is looking at the point of the pressure injury developing going back three days before. So the length of stay before that pressure injury developed was 17 days versus 13 days. So, and I think the mean of the whole group was like 12. 
or something like that. Anyway, but the point is that length of stay, it's not those beginning few days. It's almost a week into their stay in the critical care. We need to be paying attention. We really need to make sure we don't let our guard down. Is it because we can't become more familiar with the patient? We know them. They're going to self-turn or whatever. But it's during that 7 to 17 days, we better pay attention because that's when the most of this was our mean of pressure injury development. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, it does. So that's a good teaching point or a point for the bedside clinician to be really aware of that this time frame might be the higher risk than maybe when somebody first comes into the hospital. Absolutely. The other point that I thought was pretty interesting is, and it didn't reach statistical significance or that we had a lot of missing data, but on our previous study, history of a pressure injury was pretty important. And so those kind of things that can just clue the nurse into this patient is at risk is whether their length of stay, looking at their comorbidities, have they ever had a pressure injury before? That's a key thing to think about. And then, of course, some of the other things about organ failure and all those things, how sick they are comes into play too. And then there was a pretty high percent of medical device-related pressure injuries, if I remember. And so I also think that might have been the time when we were starting to pay more attention to that as a specialty. What did you make about those results? And did you change anything in the way you were practicing taking care of patients based on that? So actually, we did. We started doing things like eye taping. So instead of taping the NG tubes real snug up against the nasal passageway, we started doing what we call eye taping. So it kind of looks like an eye with the tape, and it actually makes it so the nasal tube can kind of float and it doesn't snare up against the mucosal membrane. So that was one of our big things. We worked with respiratory care And we developed an algorithm because we found that patients with BiPAP or CPAP masks developed pressure injuries across the bridge of the nose. And some of those were serious pressure injuries after a few days, because when patients come into the hospital and they're put on those machines, that pressure is pretty intense. Now, some of the patients have their own which is a little bit different because it's fitted to these patients, but the ones that we provide at the hospital, it's different. So we started putting foam dressings over the nasal passage. And then we also started using some type of a silicone manufactured device to prevent some pressure injuries. We looked at face masks instead of the kind that fit over the bridge in the nose. So just some of those kind of things, we got the silicone oxygen tubing, so it wasn't so stiff going over the ears. We got the foam pieces to put over the top of the ears for those patients. So there was a lot of things that we kind of looked at for our pressure injuries, making sure our patients have heel boots on, making sure that like our fecal tubes have foam protecting on the inner buttock area around the actual tubes. So the tubes, when the buttocks get tight, 
don't cause any kind of pressure. And then just making sure that when we're doing anything with our patients, there's a protection of foam. So for example, if our patients are prone in the specialty bed that actually rotates the patient, we would put foam dressings on those patients. So any kind of anything external to the patients, we paid a little bit more attention to. And so those were just kind of some low hanging fruit that we were thinking about. So get rid of those and you've gotten rid of a lot of your pressure injuries. They're pretty relatively easy changes to make too, I think. Yes, yes. And probably easy to get staff buy-in on those kind of changes because it makes everybody's life easier. Absolutely. I think too, we identified some EHR or our electronic health record. We, when you're doing it, trying to collect all the data, it was difficult sometimes to find things about the devices and interventions that were done for it. So we identified all those that Terry mentioned, but we weren't documenting those. So in the EHR, we made a lot of modifications and things to capture what the nurses are actually doing, trying to make life easier, not harder. Our nurses are working hard, and you don't want to make the medical record documentation more cumbersome than it already is. So we did a lot of work related to that. Sometimes you can make that help as a reminder too to cue the nurse that maybe, oh, the patient has a fecal tube, they need a foam dressing or one of those types of things too. Now in the American Journal of Critical Care article, your Braden score, the daily Braden score was higher on the unavoidable patients. Is that right? Or did I misinterpret that? The Braden subscale scores? Yeah. Were higher? Yeah. And we weren't able to really identify why that would be, but we did identify that more interventions were being done, even so. It did help us identify that the Braden still indicates, if you look at the scores, the means are not that much different. They're like, I think, I can't remember which one. One is 2.6 and one's 2.3. They were all in the lower range, but the unavoidable was a little bit higher. And I hope I'm addressing that correctly. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So again, it got down to the interventions that the nurses were doing. Unfortunately, we don't know how many interventions does it take to not get a pressure injury. We don't know that yet. And I think it's because everybody is different. Because again, if you look at the Barbara Braden's model of what causes a pressure injury and some of the more, even in more later versions, but it's still tissue tolerance. And that's the acuity of the patient. And then it's the duration of the pressure, which we know now does not take long. It can take up to minutes. Depends how sick that person is. And so we have got to intervene immediately. And we've got to do some of the things that many of us still don't have using technology to augment our skin assessment. Not many of us have thermography or subepidermal moisture devices to augment the skin. But I think we really need to pay attention to technology. It would give us better information to use our resources sooner and better, don't you think? I totally agree. I was just going to say, in what combination of risk factors, which ones are those that are the most severe? And that's what we tried to look at and we built on Barbara Delmore's work. And that goes into acute skin failure. 
Okay. So let's talk about that a little bit. So for the most recent article, so this would be the January 21, you looked at the risk factors for acute skin failure in your group of patients that you had used before that had unavoidable hospital-acquired pressure injuries. So what were the risk factors, you just mentioned that, I think, the risk factors that you used to base your work off of? We took some of the work of previous investigators, and it's the ones that we've all looked at. I mean, Barb Delmore has looked at it, Jill Cox has looked at it, I mean, many. But it talks about organ failure and the different types, whether it's respiratory, renal, cardiac, liver, and then it talks about different other clinical factors. And as Terry was alluding to before, there are a lot. It's your lab values, your hemoglobin, your hematocrit, your MAP values. So any of those tissue tolerance kind of things. And then looking at sepsis, that was a big deal. Looking at the different, because there's so many different definitions and looking at those SOFA scores. So whether it's sepsis, whether it's severe sepsis, whether it's septic shock, whether it's multiple organ disease syndrome, whatever those are. And then we tried to bring in all the latest literature, but we categorized those primary risk factors that were in the literature and we categorized it similar to what Barbara Delmore had done. And we put it under organ failure, limited tissue perfusion, sepsis continuum, and then mechanical ventilation greater than 72 hours. And we categorized the data using that kind of model. And so what did that show? What were your results? Well, it showed us that those people that develop a pressure injury, they are significantly different from those that do not. They are higher in all of those risk factors that I mentioned, organ failure, sepsis, tissue perfusion, all those things. The problem, what it didn't show, because we tried to then tease out unavoidable, those pressure injuries, unavoidable and avoidable. Unfortunately, we thought for sure the unavoidable patients, we would show some kind of association with those potentially what we're thinking are acute skin failure kind of risk factors. But unfortunately, it did not. So it just kind of blew our hypothesis out of the water because that's what we were really looking at. Don't you agree, Terry? Yes, I do. All the patients had pressure injuries versus the control group, but those patients that were unavoidable versus the avoidable, it didn't show us what we were looking for. So were you shaking your heads and thinking we must have made a mistake? And did you like relook at your data and things, thinking I must have done something wrong? or We had been working up until this point. And so I still think the puppy tool is accurate, I think, because we have shown that over time. We've done the psychometrics, but we're still missing something because the puppy tool is looking at the interventions that were done according to those concepts that those other organizations, CMS, WOCN, and PIAP, have all agreed on in the expert opinion. There was consensus conference around all this stuff. So we just operationalized it. But what are we missing? We're not sure yet. But you have to remember the acute skin failure is not a diagnosis. There is no ICD-10 code for that. There are no specific diagnostic measures for acute skin failure. It is all opinion 
and good opinion, expert opinion, but we don't have a marker. We don't have a biomarker yet. Wouldn't it be nice if we could take a biopsy and we could show, okay, this is skin failure. But at this point, we don't have that. So more work to be done. It just makes us ask more questions. When I was reading about that puppy tool, I was really thinking that that, besides helping with patient care, would be really good legally defending a facility-acquired pressure injury. (laughs) Because (laughs) when you do that, you can really measure what you did and what you didn't do in a very concrete way. And I was thinking that there was a, be a lot of application from that, just having done depositions before personally to try to defend why we said that was unavoidable and why we said it was probably going to get worse. What do you think about that? I totally agree with you. We've actually used it in those particular situations. I remember I was on a panel in the state of Indiana. They have medical panels and I remember we didn't have the puppy tool then, but they were talking about it. And I threw out, I said, well, CMS and WOCN and NPIAP have already defined unavoidable. And I named out the different concepts. And I said, if they didn't do this, there's a problem. And I had reviewed the record. And so, man, that meeting was short because they knew exactly then where they needed to look for gaps. I will say too, we've had really good interest in the puppy tool. Following our publications, typically there's always been a round of organizations contacting us. So of course, IU, Indiana University Health uses it, University of Chicago uses it, Kaiser has asked for it, Johns Hopkins has asked for it, University of Nebraska has used it, Chans, the Joint Commission. So it is being used by others when they want to dig deeper. It's a tool to use in addition to a root cause analysis tool because it pinpoints the time frame. Where are you really looking for that damage? I remember going to our safety and risk big meeting before when we have a state reportable and our leadership began then asking, well, did you do that audit? Did you use the tool? Is it avoidable or unavoidable? I mean, and so it made them feel so much better about their staff. And it also, when Terry, don't you agree when your staff is using it on our monthly prevalence work and looking at that, isn't it reassuring to the nurses? Hey, we did everything we should have done. Exactly. And or they find where they have a gap and they have an opportunity to improve. And then you would see trends if you're the person that kind of coordinates that, if you would be able to see trends as they were occurring rather than months later and then going back to identify it. Exactly. Okay. So say one of our listeners is in an organization that might want to use your tool. Is there a way to do that? Sure. All they have to do is contact either me or Terry Beeson. We share this tool free of charge. It is copyrighted and the I have had recent conversations with Dr. Jason Gilbert, who is the CNE at Indiana University Health, where we did all this work. And so we just ask that they contact us, and then we ask for them to send us on their letterhead a request and the purpose they want to use it for. And then we send them the tool and the instructions and the data collection tool that we use to collect all the Braden scores and interventions. We're happy to share it. Okay, great. 
there's so much work involved in that. It had everything in it that you would like ever look for, it seems. So now you can't have a podcast in 2021 and not ask about COVID. So I wondered what your experience has been about. I hear a lot of things from colleagues and other nurses about the COVID skin and changes related to COVID and pressure injuries in that population. And what are you seeing where you are? And what do you think that has to do with this avoidable versus unavoidable versus skin failure issue? So with those COVID patients, the coags of those patients, I mean, they're so off. It's really hard to tell. It depends on whether it's over a bony prominence. Do they have other factors going on? Are there other skin injury looking pressure injury type things on the patient's body without being over a bony prominence? I mean, we've seen some like on the face, on the chest. I mean, you see them a little bit of everywhere, but also to, I mean, you have to look at the whole picture of the patient and look at their lab values to see what's really going on with these patients. I think there's a lot of things that you need to take into consideration. So you don't want to just call it the patient has COVID and the patient wasn't really cared for appropriately and they got a pressure injury. We don't want to just call it COVID skin because they have COVID. We need to really look at those patients. And I know there has been NPIAP put out some information about COVID patients and the actual changes in skin and actually looking at pieces of the skin to determine whether or not it was like a deep pressure injury versus the COVID, which has a little bit more the coagulopathies of those just injuries was different. I just think that that's something that we really need to consider when we're looking at these patients. What else is going on with the patient? It still seemed looking at your tool that a lot of the things we see in our critical care COVID patients a lot of those criteria in the tool still apply. Well, absolutely. I mean, you need to make sure that you're doing all the appropriate interventions for those patients just because they're in isolation. And I know that we have to be careful of our PPE and that sort of thing, but those patients deserve to be turned and repositioned and all the appropriate interventions that we would do for everybody else. Yeah, and that's kind of when you have to have those standard care established in the unit so that it's like the airlines. It's done 80% of the time, no matter what. So if you have a critical care area that's taking care of critically ill patients, maybe you need to have standard equipment that's above what is out on the med search for. Maybe you need a higher level support surface. Maybe you need to have some of your securement devices readily available so that you're not causing pressure and using the harsh adhesives and tapes and things. So I think WOCN Society, too, has done some work on providing some resources for members about COVID skin. We have a lot to learn about that, too, it seems, from what we see on a daily basis. So tell me, what else are you doing with this whole topic about in your units there about pressure ulcer prevention and this tool and all this data you've collected. Do you have other things in the works or can you give us some hints about maybe things we can expect moving forward from you both? Well, of course, me, I mean, more research, we're doing it. It raises more questions. And I told Terry this even this morning. And I think I remember I was at a conference, WOCN, and I can't remember, we were presenting 
I think probably about one of these because we've presented at posters and orally at the conference. And one of the questions from the audience was, well, why didn't you look at this? And I think of that question all the time because my answer to that person was, that's a really good question. I wish I had thought of that because the more research you do, the more questions it raises. And as an example, where I am now at the University of South Alabama, I'm in a whole different population than Midwest, Indiana, and I'm seeing a lot of people of color. And so where I'm seeing my gaps is in the skin assessment. I am learning how to do an accurate skin assessment on a dark-skinned individual. When you can't see the deep tissue pressure injury because their skin is so dark, perhaps I need some technology to help me with that. See, the puppy tool, and when you do RCAs, you would identify trends. And that way you could identify, well, where's your problem? I know our problem is with skin assessment because I think we're missing it. We're catching it too late. The damage is already done. So I'm working on a gap analysis in our organization to see what practices are we missing. And it's all kind of stemmed out of this work. And then I'm looking at equity, to be honest. I'm looking at equity and care built into our practice. Are we teaching how to do a skin assessment with dark skin? I don't know that we focus on the differences in pigmentation and what an injury looks like. There are some good images out there that and graphics that help us with education, but that's kind of where I'm going. Terry and I have worked on, I'll let Terry talk about it because we started it, but we're going to maybe expand, I hope. So Terry, you want to tell that one? So we worked on developing some predictive modeling. So we've got the tool if the patient has the pressure injury. Now we want to figure out a way to prevent the patients from getting the pressure injury so we don't have to use our tool now. (laughs) So we've looked at predictive modeling. We actually have a database that has been built at IU Health with the predictive modeling and it reveals the patients that are sicker depending on how many pressors or mechanical ventilation. I mean, we've got the risk factors in this model and it determines, it gives you a percentage of the risk factor for those patients developing a pressure injury. So that's kind of something that I want to really get into a little bit more and maybe even compare it to like the Brayden score to see how that looks between the two. And I'm trying to get Joy to work with me from Alabama and maybe some <laughs> other facilities. So it's a multi-center study. That would be yeah, so good. It would good be really for... exciting because it would look at real time versus when we're doing, like Terry said, with the puppy tool, it's always retrospective. We're looking, it's too late. We're trying to look, why did they get it? This one, we've taken all those risk factors, put it into the electronic health record, and you can pull up a report for that day of who has over the threshold of risk factors. And then we could do some up our preventative game. What do you do with your OR time and OR trips? Is that part of what you look at there? It is. Yes. I'm in the surgical intensive care. So those patients that have been in the OR for long periods of time, those are my patients. I was going to say some of the RCA tools, and I don't 
want to focus on other organizations, but the OR-related pressure injury is a concern. And AORN has come out with a up-to-date revised pressure injury toolkit that is free. So I would suggest anyone to go check it out because there's a lot of resources there that you could then share with your OR staff. An OR nurse knows AORN. And so they are just confirming everything that WOCN has been talking about in pressure injury prevention. So they're a good partner. That's good. All right. What else is important that I haven't asked you ladies about? This is really great information and I think will really help our colleagues who are hanging out in the ICUs, trying to help them. Well, I just wish we had been able to understand acute skin failure a little bit better. There is a time when our patients develop pressure injuries in spite of everything we do. We just have not nailed down that magic combination of risk factors to answer that question. So I really want to caution those that use that term acute skin failure, do it very carefully because it's got to be a condition of exclusion. You rule out everything else. When there's no other answer, maybe that's what it is, but it's still a quandary. So I just want to caution that we can't use it too freely. And Terry, what else is important that we didn't talk about for you? Honestly, I think we got everything captured. I got one more thing. I always got another project. The one thing we haven't focused at, we're focusing on unavoidable. Why aren't we focusing on avoidable? And I need to talk to Terry about that. That was 60% of that group. But what are we missing? If we could change all those avoidable and prevent them, that would be a big boost. So again, there are some that are unavoidable. Got it. And those are sick puppies and we need to continue to take care of them. But there are some that are avoidable and we need to pay attention and make sure that we're doing everything we should do. Those are wise words, Joy. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you both for joining me tonight. I'm so happy to hear about all this work and it was great to read it and amazing how much you accomplished there. So I'm looking forward to see what you do next. Thank you again for having us. Thank you. In case you're interested in those references, again, that we were discussing, the first one is entitled Unavoidable Pressure Injuries, Development and Testing of the Indiana University Health Pressure Ulcer Prevention Inventory. That was in Journal of Woundostomy Continence Nursing 2016, Volume 43, Issue 1, and the authors are Pittman, Beeson, Terry, et al. The second article was in the American Journal of Critical Care, and that was entitled Hospital Acquired Pressure Injuries in Critical and Progressive Care, Avoidable versus Unavoidable. That was in the September 2019 edition, volume 28, number five, and the authors again were Pittman, Beeson, Dillon, et al. And finally, the most recent article was Hospital-Acquired Pressure Injuries and Acute Skin Failure in Critical Care, a Case Control Study. That was in the Journal of Woundostomy and Continence Nursing in the January 2021 edition. Thanks again for joining us on this week's episode of Walk Talk. Thank you for listening to this episode of Walk Talk. Please visit wocn.org slash podcast for additional details about this topic and the speakers. You can also get more information about subscribing to this podcast so you never miss an episode 
and to get the latest news and information from the WOCN Society. Again, that's WOCN.org slash podcast. We look forward to having you join us for the next episode of Walk Talk. Walk Talk.